Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Rod Show. So, of course, this is a show not only for my wonderful medical students, but for everyone. Medicine is for everyone. It's about being yourself. It's about talking about hot topics out there, topics that are interesting. Topics can be medical and they cannot be. And I think we have a very, very special guest tonight. And I mean, I can't say enough about this. In fact, you know, as I'm speaking right now, I'm actually taking out my cell phone because I have a little something I want to say about my wonderful guest. I'm going to read it, but I'll kind of put my, you know, my thing into it a little bit to kind of not make it seem just verbatim. This is Michelle, and Michelle was actually a really good friend of mine, so it's not like she's a stranger, but I want to say some things about her. So, Michelle is a board-certified hospice and palliative care nurse with 17 years of combined experience in critical care, hospice, palliative care nursing, staff development, and education. Michelle currently works in both the outpatient oncology and inpatient hospice in Philadelphia and is an end-of-life nursing education consortium trainer. That was kind of a mouthful for me. But Michelle was the recipient of the Rosalind J. Watts Clinical Nursing Excellence Award for Excellence in Nursing, Patient, and Family Relationships from Penn, which is the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems. Yay, Ivy League. Way to go, Michelle. And in 2017, you know, Michelle has presented the hospice documentary, and I love this one, The Nurse with the Purple Hair, and we'll talk about that in a second, to both national and international audiences with iconic horror director, Sean Cunningham. We'll talk about that. Michelle is a member of the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association and Oh, she's Greek. There we go. Sigma Theta Tau Nursing Honor Society. I love that. Michelle is, uh, is dedicated to uh, the provision of quality end-of-life care and education, and she considers herself a death-positive advocate and is currently the co-facilitator of Death Cafe Philadelphia. Very cool. We're going to talk about that also. And she is a practicing member of the End-of-Life Advocacy Group, Death Party uh, Philadelphia. And last but not least, she remains a visible in her local community, providing opportunities to increase end of life education and normalizing the conversation. Wow. That, I mean, I have to say that, that was amazing. So with no further ado, I'm going to introduce my good friend, the nurse with the purple hair, Michelle, how are you? I am great. Thanks so much for having me. This is such a fun invite. Well, I mean, number one, I just know you personally, you're such a cool person and you represent a lot of really good things in life. And I really wanted this podcast to be about some of the big topics that um, I just know you're a, net, you're a pro at, which is end of life care, you know, showing empathy. And um, I can't think of anyone better. Well, thanks so much. I'm going to read off my list of questions. Now, this is going to be kind of like our kind of ease into it conversation questions. So, you know, um, I met you in, in, in California, you know, and so my question is, where were you born? 
And uh, where were you born anyways? I was born here in Philadelphia. So that's where I currently reside. Yep. And if you had special powers to be anywhere because you saw California, where would you want to live in the entire world? Would you want to be in Philly? I lived in Philly for a little bit. Or would you like to move here with, you know, close to the coast with the weather? Wow, that's a that's an awesome question. Um, so there's certainly some places I haven't been that I would love to go, um, <clears throat> like Spain. That was on my bucket list until the world shut down. Um, <laughs> however, I, California always has a special place in my heart. I did live there for a few years in Los Angeles, and um, part of me remains there. So, I, you know, you wouldn't have to twist my arm to go back there. <laughs> now, and I'll speak <laughs> which, I mean, it, how is the weather in, in Philly right now? Did you have to, like, get in an accident to get home from work? Uh, is it pretty bad? Um, it's a little better today than it was the last 48 hours. So we did just weather a snowstorm, um, which, you know, makes it interesting always. Um, but it's pretty cold, and uh, it's not ideal. I'll tell you that. I'm missing palm trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we no, we are we are very spoiled here in California, with the exception of the occasional earthquake. <laughs> We're okay, um, but good call in Spain, though. I, I mean, you're so young. I, I think you'll definitely make that bucket list. But good call in Spain. What what city in particular are you kind of kind of edging towards? Anyone in particular? Um, I mean, I had time. I had planned to spend some time in Barcelona, but um, you know, I feel like that trip would be wherever wherever the sun guides me, you know, I'm sort of open to anything. So would that be a, a family trip with the kids or is that just you and a margarita on the beach in Barcelona? Yeah, that's pretty much me and a margarita. <laughs> I think, you know, maybe a friend, I don't know. I, my cousin was going to go with me and we were just going to indulge. <laughs> so let me ask you this. So I love going places and getting lost in the culture. That's, you know, that was sort <laughs> no, of my goal. Definitely. I just, you know, my, my wife and I, we had our, our, our first baby moon in, uh, in Spain, and it was actually in, in Barcelona, and we, we loved it. So you have great taste in travel, honestly. Well, thank you. <laughs> so let me ask, so you did your, your high school in Philadelphia, and I just wanted to know, like, when did you realize in general that you wanted to be a nurse? When did that become the first goal? So that's an interesting conversation, to be quite honest. Um, I, uh, ideally, I'd always wanted to be a doctor. And, oh, um, all right. cool. and I'll tell you, you know, I think, um, probably in high school, I knew that I wanted to do something in medicine. I just was drawn to it. And I remember, um, sort of grasping onto any, um, opportunities there was, you know, to sort of just take a peek inside what that world looked like. Um, and I had had this weird opportunity to watch open heart surgery at oh. Temple and I loved it. And I was like, this is it. I look like I want, I just wanted to learn everything like a sponge. Um, and somewhere along my journey, um, I remember having a advisor say to me, you know, what do you want to be? And I was like, oh, I totally want to be pre-med. And she literally said, oh, honey, <laughs> you blew that years ago. And I was like, what? Ouch! And I never Ouch. forgot that, really. And I was like, and then I honestly was like, oh, great. I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. There it is. <laughs> you know, and, um, and that really, like, honestly just pissed me off. Yeah. And so... I, uh, you know, I kept sort of looking into that career and, um, I first was an EMT. So I, I loved the emergency medicine piece of things. Um, and in truth, I really did not have a good appreciation or understanding of what nurses actually do. Um, until I had a friend who said like, Hey, what are you doing next semester? We were literally in college and I was like, I don't know. And she was like, well, I'm going to nursing school. I don't want to go alone. Why don't you come with me? <laughs> and that's literally how it happened. And then I absolutely fell in love with it. Cause I was like, Whoa, I did not know all of this was involved. 
in being a nurse. Well, I like that part about the, the, the counselor. It's almost like the counselor is supposed to nurture you and be your, your guiding light. I wish you filmed that like, hey, I'm thinking doctor. No, that's yeah. not in your car. I mean, it's, it, that, that is funny but sad at the same time the way you presented that. But, um, but, I'll, yeah. but I'll tell you, like, yeah. there was a moment, like, you know, mm-hmm. as I worked through my career where I, um, I had some really challenging uh, patients scenarios when I was really in the thick of doing hospice. And, um, you know, I had contemplated, you know, sort of just advancing my career. And I sat with the doctor that I was worked very closely with. And we had a good conversation one night. And I said, you know, do you think I'd make a good nurse practitioner? And he said, I think you'd make a good doctor. <laughs> and that moment, like I know, he had no idea about the conversation, you know, years prior. But for me, that was sort of like this validation, like, nah, you got it. No, and whoever that doctor was, kudos to him or her because, I mean, they're spot on. I mean, I treat you like you're one of my colleagues, probably like like one of my higher-up colleagues. That's how much I respect you. You're great. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> so let me ask you this. So, I mean, um, nursing is pretty broad. You know, um, there's inpatient, there's outpatient. I love my ICU nurses, if anyone's listening. And even within that, there, there, there's so many subtypes. And you kind of gravitated towards, you know, palliative care and hospice. You know what I mean? We're going to kind of clump those together. How did you go in that direction, especially with an EMT background, which I forgot you were? You know, I, you told me that in the past. I mean, you seem to be kind of more action-packed and maybe some gory. You know what I mean? Like, give me like a little, you know, CPR action in a good way. What, how did you get into that? Yeah, so interesting. Um, I was certainly, you know, working in that fast-paced environment. I was doing neurotrauma surgical ICU at Cedars. And, um, you know, and I was in the thick of things. And um, I worked a night shift. And uh, one morning, I was on my way home. And when I pulled into the garage, when I lived in LA, I, I found out that my father had had a massive heart attack that morning at work back in Philadelphia. And he died. Oh and I God. never I never thought that the second part of that, I never thought that the sentence was going to end that way. And they're literally from the time that I found out that that had happened. I mean, so at the time I was married, my husband said to me, you know, we got a call. Your dad had a heart attack at work. And there maybe was a second before the end of the sentence. But in my head, I already was like, okay, heart disease runs in our family. I'm going to have to fly home. He's going to have to have all kinds of surgery. He's going to hate it, but we're going to get through it, blah, 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 blah. And then it was, and he died. And I think everything that moved really fast anywhere around me just completely stopped. Hey, how uh, old were you at that time? And how old was your dad? I was 25 years old. My father was 54. He's so young. Yeah. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, my my dad, my dad was um, the fourth person in his side of the family to literally drop dead like that. Um, You know, ranging in age from 42, one of his cousins was 42 to 62, you know, so it super sucked. There's no other way to say it. No. You know, I went back to work eventually. Um, and it was just very different for me. And, uh, and I've said this numerous times in other conversations, but I really, um, I sort of feel callous when I say it, but I just was in this kind of bubble where I was like, man, I don't want to save anybody anymore. And that was part of my own grief, you know, and I felt like I was sort of surrounded with doing all these things. And I would look in these ICU rooms and see pumps and bags and monitors and tubes and lines and all kinds of things. And I was just like, I don't know. I was processing my own stuff. Like, why didn't I have the opportunity to be in this situation to have my goodbye, you know, or whatever. And hospice was always something that I was really interested in. I was interested in learning about end of life. I'd certainly been exposed to death within, you know, our, um, 
profession, but it really wasn't something we were taught very well about. Um, you know, we, it was very brief in school. It was sort of like this bum rush of like, this is what happens. People die, move on next. And I, I found myself thinking like, we spend all of this time learning about all of the things the body can do and cannot do until the last chapter. And it, and then, you know, it just became this question for me. And, um, you know, so I, I transitioned into hospice and I absolutely fell in love with it. Most, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, one, because I just felt like there was so much knowledge in there that people just, we just don't share. And I just couldn't figure out why, but also it was my own healing journey. So it became everything that I did not get to do for my father that I got to do for so many other people. And then I got to do sometimes for people who I did love. And it was really such a special space to stand in and learn about. And, you know, you have to, there's a lot of opportunity for humility in that setting, but in a really profound way. And I think it really changed, you know, the type of provider that I am. Now, we're going to talk more about just the amazing people that do hospice, and we're going to dive into more of that, but I'm going to like go into your timeline to how you became where you are. Then we're going to go back in time again to talk about the nurse with the purple hair. But, you know, uh, when I first met you, you were not a nurse practitioner. You were you're always been amazing. But then during our, as I get to know you, I remember a couple of years ago, you called me and you're like, Hey, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to get this degree. And I just wanted to know, um, what motivated you to go to that next step in nursing? Because not all nurses go into nurse practitioner, but many are. And, um, after you answer that kind of add on, do you actually miss where you were <laughs> just being, you know, being a nurse without the stresses and new responsibilities of being a nurse practitioner? Well, so I'm not actually there yet. I'm in the process currently. So I'm still, I'm obtaining that degree as we speak. I haven't reached it yet, but I'm in the, in the process of it. But what has motivated me, I think, is um, autonomy and mm-hmm. um, the desire to teach. I really, really, truly love teaching. I love having students. You know, I promised myself that I would never forget what it was like to be a nursing student. You know, and I'm certain that I have to believe that medical students experience the same thing all along the way of, you know, to getting where you want to go. There's nothing like walking onto a floor into an office where you're supposed to be, you know, doing a, sh- you know, a shadow opportunity or, um, you know, clinical time. And you clearly can see that that person who you're with doesn't really want your company that day. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. We have all been there, you know. But there's still something that you can learn from that person and that experience and that discomfort, right? So there's something to be said for being able to stand in the presence of an uncomfortable situation. And I think part of that is exactly what we do in end of life, right? We have to get comfortable being in uncomfortable situations. And so, yeah, I just really, I, I can't speak enough about it. I'm sort of like a, a deaf geek, if you will. I don't know if there is such a thing, but I'd like to invent <laughs> it if not. <laughs> hey, uh, Michelle, how many more months do you have how close are you to the the the, the end line i'm a little far away i have about two years left yeah, so years Michelle, you're, yeah. Already, you're, you're already sounding beyond your years in this conversation you know <laughs> i mean if, if there's no more COVID at the time are you going to invite me down to uh, kind of have a beer with you when you uh oh my you goodness graduate? i would love that are you kidding me? I would love that. I would. So we got to have that. a get together party for you. No, for I can sure. see you being like the really cool nurse practitioner. You know what I mean? If I was a student and I get to see this wonderful nurse with purple hair who has all this cool knowledge with empathy and smart, 
I'll be like, uh, I'll be digging it. I like it. <laughs> so let's, you know, this kind of like kind of led me to, I'm mentioning all this purple hair and, you know, for everyone who's listening in today, I'm going to put pictures of Michelle with her beautiful literal purple hair, which I'm looking at right now. And so let me ask the obvious question, Michelle, you know, I know the answer, but my listeners don't. Why the purple hair? Is there, can you, can you explain that? Why not the pink? Why not the, uh, you know, um, the, the green, you know? So I wish this was really awesome, but it's actually just really simple and honest. Um, purple has literally always been my favorite color since I was a little girl. <laughs> and, um, and really along, I think along my journey, specifically within hospice, what I learned from people that I cared for was, you know, the little things are the most important. And don't wait to do things that make you happy. And so something as ridiculous as hair color, I mean, it's hair, right? And so naturally, there was some pushback because it's not a natural hair color. However, I have to tell you, you know, my, my response was sort of like, come back and talk to me when it affects my clinical delivery of care. Mm-hmm. And it actually does quite the opposite because I feel like there's something to be said about looking a little different, you know, or being the odd man out. Mm-hmm. And it actually has invoked more conversation with my patients than you would think, you know, because there are people who say, Oh my gosh, you know, I've always wanted to do that. You know, I always wanted to be teal, you know, or I wanted to be green or I wanted to do purple hair or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and they just, I don't know, or people who feel different or feel like there's something that makes them stand out from the crowd. For some reason it resonates. And, and in all sincerity, uh, people, more people talk to me now than ever before in my entire life. When I was a brunette, <laughs> nobody walked up to me and said like, Hey, your hair is cool. Nobody. I, I was at the hospital. I have to tell you, um, like at the beginning of, uh, before pre pandemic and I was crossing the street, literally I went to Starbucks and got a coffee. I was crossing the street. This woman rolled her window down in her car, honked at me. And she was like, girl, I love that hair. I just had to tell you, you crossed the street and in the sunlight, it was beaming. I mean, people talk to me in the supermarket and the airport. It's, it's lovely. Um, and so I don't know what it is. I don't know if it says like, Hey, maybe, you, you know, I don't know if it screams like I'm a little more open-minded or I'm a little more approachable or I'm just different. And maybe that's more interesting. I don't know. I don't no, know. I think the answer is in my opinion, it's a little bit of everything, but I really like what you first said, which is, you know, especially around this time with COVID and everything and me being around a lot of people who are unfortunately, you know, going to pass away. I do hear that phrase, which is, I wish I did this. I could have done that. And me and my wife talk about it all the time about still me. I'm not old. Trust me, Michelle, I'm not old, you know, and like we already had, and I was talking with my wife about the bucket list and things we want to accomplish because nowadays there's so many question marks out there. And I think when I look at your hair, you know, I never thought of it till you put it into words, which is, don't wait to do something because you will regret it. And it doesn't mean, I mean, trust, I, I have no hair to, to die, but I think <laughs> the analogy is out there where, you know, don't let something, you know, slip by and regret. So I do like that answer. That's one of my, one of my favorite answers from you right now. I like it. I mean, honestly, there was a patient who said to me, you know, one time she was like, honey, I bet you have a bureau full of jewelry and maybe you have perfume that you just save for the times that you got to fancy dinner. Why? <laughs> She says, wear the perfume every day, put on different jewelry every day. Every day is a gift. Every day is something special. And she was right. She was right. And and you know, it's funny, like, uh, I'll just mention this really briefly. And it it kind of motivated me to talk to you because I know you, you know, so much about hospice end of life. My wife's uh, father just died of a glioblastoma brain tumor and amazing guy, but his 
favorite phrase at the end at the end of his life going the last couple months was always going to be life is good you know and he appreciated every little thing and it's kind of like is what you're saying is like why wait for the perfect moment to use whatever perfume appreciate what you have and i didn't really understand why he would say that you know in the last you know 6 to 12 months but i understand now life is good it's the little things that that really mean a lot. Well, and you know, from his perspective, I mean, he was looking at the most wonderful things. All of you guys were around him. What could be better? Yeah, well said. Now, kind of on the same train of thought, my next question is going to be the nurse with the purple hair. We mentioned how you teamed up with a iconic a horror movie director. And we'll talk about that. But you met him at a, uh, a, a horror show movie convention. So my question to you, with all your wonderful medical knowledge and empathy and the hugest heart in the whole world, what are you doing at a horror movie convention to begin with? And then we'll talk about, you know, how how you met Sean and everything. So what were you doing there? Were you like the the dedicated EMT person? What were you doing there? (laughs) So how I got there is because I am also a movie and music nerd and I absolutely love horror. It's my favorite genre. Um, and so, uh, the first time I'd ever gone to a convention, I just was like, Whoa, I didn't even know this world existed and I love it. How do I get involved with it? Um, and so over time I actually, um, had the opportunity to become a celebrity assistant. And so I was traveling and pairing up with different celebrities when they do these public appearances. And I happened to be assigned to be Sean's assistant for this convention that we were at out in Toronto. And, um, you know, I was, I mean, it was awesome. And so within the first few minutes of us meeting one another, uh, he had said to me, you know, what do you, what's your day job? What do you do? Like, is this what you do all the time? You just travel around celebrities. And I was like, well, I kind of wish, but no, I just really <laughs> love people. You know, I said, I really love people and I really love movies. And that's what led me here. However, I'm a hospice nurse. And um, with just in, a, you know, the reaction from him and his wife was very emotional. And I knew that there was fresh loss there somewhere. And so that sort of literally opened the door for these conversations about, you know, end of life. And he said, really, is that really what you do? And I said, yeah. And he was like, well, can I pick your brain a little bit? And I said, sure. And so, you know, we got into the how, why, when, how long, you know, and um, we just began sharing experiences because we were both no stranger to love and loss. Um, And so I ended up actually, you know, helping out with some personal things that weekend related to that recent loss. And, um, we went on to continue our conversation over dinner. And, you know, I said to him, there is so much good and so much happiness and so much laughter. And there's just so much, there's just the experiences that you get in this intimate space with these people, because the thing is, yes, people are dying. And yes, that is sad. However, those people never stop being who they are. Nobody wants to be defined by their disease. And so often in our system, right, it becomes room whatever, 316 or the, you know, (laughs) GI cancer and whatever, like, that's just what happens. And we don't mean to do that for, to you know, there's no negative connotation to that. It's sort of, you know, we're trying to maintain HIPAA, we're trying to get our point across. But somewhere in there, that person slowly starts to lose their identity. And we forget that along the way, very innocently. And I found that when you sit with people who are reflecting on their entire life, you know, there's always a healthy person inside of a sick body. That was a lesson that I learned. And I think it's so important to share because, yeah, sometimes you don't know what to say, but sometimes you don't have to say anything. 
And that's a really that's important lesson too. Yeah. You know, so all silence does not have to be filled with words. Sometimes just holding presence and holding space for somebody, it, you know, you're just giving somebody a gift that is priceless. Um, and so we just went on and on and on and on. And then I thought like, you know, he's telling, you know, we started sharing stories and, and I started to get really excited like I do because I tend to geek out about the really amazing experiences that I have with people and the incredible people that I meet along the way. And, and that was something else I fell in love with was, you know, I just was exposed to all of this culture and ethnicity and religion and all of these traditions and things that we just don't talk about, but really for no good reason other than we just don't talk about them. We don't talk about them. We don't question it because it's weird and it's uncomfortable, but. It's actually pretty awesome. <laughs> and, um, you know, I said to him, man, people just don't get it. And I, I'm so confused. I said, there's been television shows on for years, like Trauma Life in the ER or Baby Story. All these things are on TLC, but nobody's showing you what happens on an end-of-life unit. Nobody shows you what happens on a hospice inpatient unit. No one's showing you what's happening in the house. But I don't know why. And I said, man, I would love to have a camera follow me around. You have no idea. I said, it's not <laughs> all depressing. And then he was like, bing. There was like this little imaginary cartoon light that went off above his head. <laughs> And, um, and he was like, well, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, how do we get people to come home after a long day of work and like put on a TV show about death? It's not going to happen. And I was like, that's the thing. It's really not all sad. And you, you've got to get people into that world. Nobody's ever pulled the curtain back. No one's, you know, everybody knows there's a wizard back there, but nobody really shows it, right? <laughs> Good I analogy. Mean, I like that. <laughs> now, let me just tell you, because I know the audience is probably like, you're saying the word Sean as if everyone knows who Sean is. You know what I mean? <laughs> so let me just kind of break the ice. So oh, first please. off, I'm going to let the Dr. Raj fans, if there's any fans out there, know that I'm a huge horror movie geeker too. And that's one reason why me and Michelle actually are good friends, you know, and we'll talk a couple of things about that, but we're referring to iconic director, Sean Cunningham. And for those who don't know who that is, the movie he is the most well-known for is Friday the 13th, the series. And of course, you know, even though the killer in the first movie was actually the mother, the killer for most of the series is actually <laughs> someone named Jason Voorhees, and he wears a, a hockey mask, you know. Michelle, I'm assuming pe some people don't know who this is, that's why. So let me well, ask you so a couple of... Uh, a couple of the fun uh, uh, horror movie questions. Number one, let's pretend Sean's not listening to this. Uh, what, what are going to be your top horror movies? And you don't feel, I want you to get bullied in there. What are some of the, the, the horror movies that you kind of geek out on? Oh man, this is such a hard question. All right. Well, mm. So I grew up with all those classic, you know, mm -hmm. horrors like Friday the 13th, Halloween, you know, mm -hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street. Those were the things, Children of the Corn. I mean, all those crazy things. But yes. I'll tell you the thing that the one movie that really literally like rocked me to the core, scared me. And probably mm. still today, I won't sleep in the dark because of it was The Exorcist. Oh. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, you know, literally like that just for me stands the test of time. It yeah. is just the ultimate creepy horror movie. Mm -hmm. Um. Boy, is there a close really second? Is there a close second? Who's going to get the close second? Ooh. Oh my goodness. Like scary wise. I don't know, but I'll tell you one of the ones that I just fell in love with was a cabin in the woods. So it's a little <laughs> more recent, but yeah. man, such amazing, like homage to all the movies I saw. And I, and the concept I didn't see coming. It was so great. I'm not going to give any spoilers. So if you don't know <laughs> it, you need it's homework. No, well, I love the, the, the new cabin in the woods. And no, I agree for its time in the late 60s, early 70s, Linda Blair, Exorcist. Yeah, that's that's pretty creepy. No, but but I agree. I mean, you give me some, you know, some pinhead, some Freddy Krueger. Right. 
you know, and the new Michael Myers, the new Halloween with this new younger director, it, it actually scared the bejesus out of me. I don't know if you got a chance to see the new one. It's actually really good, you know, but um, yep. so let me ask you this. So you get a chance to meet Sean Cunningham, who I knew who that was anyways, because I'm into that, totally. that genre. So, you know, like you're telling him your ideas about, hey, you know, you know, when we talk about palliative care, hospice care, it's just misinterpreted. You know what I mean? It's not presented in the right way. And he presented you with an opportunity to actually, you know, put your ideas and you on a platform. I mean, uh, explain what the opportunity is. And did you feel like, are you sure? I mean, don't you make movies of machetes going through people's heart? I mean, are you the right person to team up with me? What was your thought about that? Well, I have to say, I never thought, are you the right person? Um, I thought, I definitely was like, what? Yes, anything. We can make this happen. However, it was such a, it was such a surreal, but serendipitous, like match. It was so amazing. You know, we had, we had worked together at that convention and then, you know, we decided we would stay in touch and we had lovely conversation. And, you know, I just thought that would be amazing if that happened, but you know, everybody, you know, everybody has good intentions, right? Man, Sean called me just a, a couple months later. He was like, you know, Michelle, I haven't been able to stop thinking about what we talked about. And I think you're right. I just think that not enough people understand end of life. I don't think people understand hospice. And I think more education needs to be out there. We say we make a movie together. Literally just like, and I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Is this happening? You know? And, um, and I went, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't really know what that means, but okay. Um, and so, you know, I just, I was super excited, but then I, at the same time, I didn't want to allow myself to be excited because I had no idea where, where this adventure would take us, you know, or what would happen. And, and, uh, you know, so we worked together at a different convention just a few months later. And, um, I mean, he got off the plane and he was like, so good to see you. All right, here's what I've been thinking. And he literally like had this whole list of things and he, he presented me with articles about end of life care. And I was (laughs) totally in awe of his research. And I thought, of course he's the director. Right. And we just, our, our chatter never stopped. Our, it just went back and forth and back and forth. And it was amazing. And he has been such a wonderful friend, mentor, advocate. I just, I don't know that I have enough words that are what I truly feel, you know, I would want to express about him. I mean, this has really been the adventure of a lifetime, I think for both of us, because it became this beautiful marriage of both of our passions, you know, film and, and medicine. I remember there was a time when Sean said to me, you know, he dropped me off at the airport. We had just started filming and he said, you know, I don't really know what's going to come of this. I don't know how many people were going to, you know, get to see it. And he said, but, you know, even if we just help two people somehow, if this film just helps two people, we've done something really great here. And I said, I think you're right. And it was just such an awesome adventure, you know, to figure out what is the story? What is the message? And then to have him dive into, you know, why he creates death on film and how, you know, there is this, this um, fascination that will take ourselves to the movies and we'll watch these crazy things and we'll watch death on film, but we can't sit down at the dinner table and talk about it. You know, we can't talk about it over drinks. We certainly can't talk about it if it, you know, uh, relates to us in our own life and our own mortality. Um, but you know, I mean, if you want to talk about all those kids that got killed at that cabin, you know, by Jason, (laughs) we're all down, you know? Um, so yeah, it's been this beautiful adventure and, um, I don't know. I'm just internally grateful for it. Well, you know, let me just say that. So how I met the nurse with the purple hair is that, 
um, someone reached out to me. I was at USC and invited me to go to the house to watch a preview. So I go to Sean's house. And when I go in there, they had these posters of you on display. They had a very exclusive screening with, I think it was only like maybe six, seven other people were in Sean's living room. He's playing it. He's watching it with me. And uh, I met you for the first time. And no, and I got to say, Sean, in my opinion, treated you just like a daughter. You know what I mean? He's always so proud of you. Anytime I wanted to uh, do something with you and him, he's like, no, Michelle's first. She should be, you know, and I could just tell how much it was important for him. And it was great. And this movie, everyone was just amazing. In the beginning of the movie, uh, it has a collage of Jason's killing scenes. (laughs) And then it goes into this beautiful story where, I mean, it'll make you tear up. And it's called The Nurse with the Purple Hair. You know, it's just an amazing, amazing story. And I'm going to try to put a link on on our our talk here. But let me ask you this. what was when they were filming you interacting with all these different patients, you know, um, was it, were you nervous? Was it kind of like, what was the hardest part of having someone walk you around and filming you trying to do your job and being you? You know, I think, um, just making sure that the genuine experience was captured, right? So nothing about this was really movie making. This was telling, showing what is happening in real life. I think that's really important, right? So, and not only that, this was really not about me. I, I suppose I am the conduit, which I'm happy to be, because if that streamlines people to the message and to understanding the care and to debunking the myths around it and decreasing the fear, then, then we've done what we aim to do, you know, and ideally, you know, bringing people together, bringing strangers together to have these conversations and, and be less afraid. I mean, you know, just for an instance, let's talk about advanced care planning, right? We cannot talk about that because if we talk about it, something bad might happen. If we write it down, something's definitely going to happen, right? We've sealed our fate if we make an advanced directive, you know, which couldn't be further from the truth, you know? And, you know, the other thing is, right, you have to be old to die. Really? Do you? You know, I mean, these are like these, you know, these, these, I don't know, these myths, right? Or, you know, hospice, I'm always hearing that, you know, you know, oh, well, you know, hospice is only needed when, you know, there's hours to days left of life. Well, so there are some scenarios where, you know, hospice comes in and there are hours to days left of someone's life, but not because hospice came in and made that so, because we only got to meet that person hours to days before their life was going to end. There's a huge difference. Now, I want to make sure I have like three important questions. I want to make sure we dwell on these. So one thing that was really cool because, you know, with the pandemic, you know, we, it's, it's hard to go around the country promoting your, your movie and all the great things you are and going in front of people for safety reasons. But I want to talk about death clubs because I don't think many people who are listening know what a death club is. And then when you first talked to me about it, it, you know, it, it doesn't initially emulate the thoughts of, oh, obviously, we're going to be talking about end-of-life care. It, it just has its connotation. So um, I know you have one. You've run one. Can you explain to my audience what a death club is? And you told me behind the scenes how there's a new spin on it right now. It's not only just for what you think it is. And can you expand on it? Absolutely. So um, Death Cafe is really a gathering of strangers 
uh, ideally, we're supposed to gather in person, you know, and over coffee and tea and cake or sweets and just talk about anything related to death and dying. And that doesn't necessarily have to just mean physical death, right? And it's not meant to be a bereavement group. It's supposed to be a safe and respectful space for people to gather and just have these conversations in a normalized fashion. Um, you know, and we're respectful of one another. There's no particular objectives or agenda. It's just, it's just, it's an, I don't, you know, it's an amazing space where I always say we gather as strangers and we leave as friends. And although the company sometimes is the same because we have, you know, some regulars, the conversation never is twice. And that is what is so awesome about it. So Death Cafes originated in London in 2011. Um, There was a gentleman, John Underwood, um, him and his mother, who was a psychotherapist, sort of, you know, openly were discussing like, why is there this big taboo around death and dying? And they started this sort of informal gathering and it took off. And to date, there's been over 12,000 death cafes around the world in 75 countries. Anybody can become a host. You know, it's not, it's not a for-profit thing. I do it of my own free will because I just love it. Um, And so, you know, I actually, you know, there's death cafes everywhere. You could go online when we are, you know, done listening to this podcast and just type in death cafe, Los Angeles. Death Cafe California and and whoever is hosting one in your area it will pop up it's free you you know if you attend you don't even have to talk you can say I'm just here to listen I heard about this I just wanted to see what it was about you know and I'll tell you with Death Cafe how many people before COVID how many people would would come and would you really have is everyone kind of hesitant at first to speak up do you have a some like you know me had some couple questions to get the it going were you like everyone just kind of opened up right away what was the experiences yeah, no, I mean, I'll tell you the first time. So I had been hearing about it and I was an attendee before I became a host. And I sat at a table where, you know, ideally there could be two people, there could be 20 people. And so there's a few hosts usually, so we can break up into smaller groups. So everybody oh. has a chance to, you know, be heard or listen. So really we try to have no more than six people at a table. We can all be okay. together, but we break up into these small groups. Um, and then we come back together at the end. And there's something magical that happens in that space. I don't, I encourage everybody to try it and I invite you to come to our cafe. So since the pandemic, we moved to a virtual platform, which has really been amazing because I honestly think we've been able to reach more people who, you know, have transportation issues or, you know, just physically are unable to leave the house, but have always wanted to be a part of this. Um, And what has been interesting during the pandemic time is that it's not just physical death that we're discussing. We've discussed, the death of relationships, the death of socialization, the death of, you know, financial stability, you know, there's just, there's so much because the grief process doesn't change whether or not it's, you know, physical death or, you know, a different type of loss, you know, you still have to go through those same stages and it's all applicable and it's all relatable and we all experience it because we're all human. I have you know, a question. You got me yeah. really fired up now, dude. Um, what about questions about the afterlife? And the only reason I'm saying is that because, you know, my wife's dad passed away. And and I, I wonder, you know, I mean, me and Michelle joke in a very nice way. If, if he comes back and gives us a signal, you know what I mean? I don't want it to be a creepy signal. Before he died, I'm like, dad, if you come <laughs> back, don't be all freaking making the rocking chair move. Just be a nice dove or bird on the... Do people ask questions about the afterlife in these death cafes? Is that a common oh. question or... All the time. And so to go backwards for a second, yes, we have conversation starters in case there's sort of dead, dead air. <laughs> no <pun intended. laughs> but um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, we joke, we laugh, we cry, we, you know, um, but yes, people talk about that all the time. There, you know, there, I, we have 
I have a woman who regularly attends a death cafe and she's an atheist and she shares why she feels that way. She's had lots of loss. You know, I co-host with a rabbi. I mean, there are people chime in with all different questions, beliefs, non-beliefs, you know, and it's what I can tell you is it's such a respectful space. I think that is really part of what is so special about it is that everyone's opinion and belief is welcomed. You know, there's no, um, I mean, we're all just mature and respectful and it's, I don't know, it's really something special. I, I truly invite you all to just no, come no, and try it. You, I mean, I have more questions now than anyone. So would you say in general, people go to these uh, death cafes, you know, would it be people who are going through have lost someone on that side or people who are actively un- unfortunately lost someone or dying themselves? Like what, 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 what is the, the majority of people or just a bunch of curious people like me and you, what's the majority that go there? Literally it's all of the above. So I've been at a cafe where I'll tell you one of the most, the coolest, I remember this, this is such a cool night because Mm. we broke into these little groups. And so, you know, I'm there and I introduce myself and tell everyone that I'm a nurse and share a little bit of my background. And um, we had a cardiologist show up and he said, yes, I'm a cardiologist, but I am not here tonight as a doctor. I am just here as a, as a person. I am here as a participant. However, we also had a, um, you know, a woman in the group who was actively being treated for cancer and she was sharing a whole lot about her story. And then we had a participant in the group who was a caregiver for his elderly parents who both had different illnesses that they were, you know, one was declining more rapidly than the other. You know, we've had, I had, we had a, a college student who said, you know, I'm just, I'm, studying psychology and I've been fascinated by death and dying and I just kind of want to come and listen. Would it be okay if I listened and took notes? You know, um, you know, there was someone who said like, I don't know, my friend drugged me here. I don't know what, you know, she just didn't want to come alone. I mean, literally. And sometimes it's the person who was brought there as the companion who ends up doing the most talking. I mean, it's just, it's so cool. The things that come out and you, you wouldn't believe the depth of the conversation and it's an hour and a half. So it flies by. It feels like forever when you get there and it, flies by we're always we always end up cutting the conversation off but it's just super cool super cool let me ask you this because it kind of leads to another question but i still want to talk about this you know with the pandemic and everything you know obviously in person is not the way to go right about now but um how's the feel are you still doing death cafes like we're doing now through a zoom or some kind of telemedicine whatever it is and um are you getting more covid related questions and concerns if you notice the change in the the the, what people are talking about michelle what do you think so i think for sure it has definitely you know it's definitely come into the conversation but i think it's been really helpful for a lot of people because at the very beginning of um i'd say like right when the pandemic was really starting to peak and people were still really we were unsure of things everyone was unsure of things you know but deaths were happening and how, you know, funerals were happening changed, how people were able to process their grief was changing. And so there's a gentleman who comes to our group who he was one of the first um, participants to say, you know, I just, he lost his mother. He said, I just lost my mother and it was this, to COVID. Wow. And he said, you know, he was, he said, this was the weirdest thing because I, you know, I, we come from a, a big family. We have a family of my, my mother had eight children. Um, and he said, you know, one of the strange things was, they were only allowing 10 people at a time into the funeral home. And he was like, well, that's our, our literally our immediate, immediate family is larger than 10. He said, yeah. and, and we, so, you know, they, they did what they had to do to be able to all go in and see their mom. And that was prior to offering, you know, live stream of a funeral. 
So yeah. they were really isolated in that grief and in that processing. And then they were even afraid to hug one another. Yeah. So he said, you know, imagine losing your mom and you're at a funeral where you're really you have to stand six feet apart and you can't even hug your sister or your brother. It's almost an impossible feeling. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've sort of moved into people explaining their grief and loss with losing someone in the hospital. I just lost um, a friend and coworker a few weeks ago who I didn't get to go see because I wasn't allowed, you know, and it was so hard to respect that. It made me so angry. It, it brought up all of these different feelings inside of myself, you know. Um, I mean, there's, yes, I think there's lots of COVID stuff. There's been, you know, there's been vaccine related questions. There's been, you know, just safety related questions. There's been lots of frustration about maintaining social distancing, maintaining isolation, grief and loss of holiday traditions. I mean, this can go on and on and on and on, right? I mean, there's so much to talk about, so much to process. No, and, you know, I'll just kind of, you know, mention this is that I think you're definitely in the right field. And to speak to all the people in path of care and geriatrics and the hospice, I mean, I think very few people realize the key role that you and your colleagues have during this pandemic. I think that, you know, the news appropriately so focuses on the emergency department, the ICU. But I think that part of that initial conversation is you know, preparing the family, preparing the patient, you know, what to expect. And I think the one thing I'll say about myself is that, especially in the ICU setting, I can't even tell you what brings more sadness when you have to place someone on a ventilator. You know, it's not even for a moment like, I'm saving your life. I mean, the first thoughts are, you're going to be alone. You're going to be in a chemical coma. You're not going to talk to him for a while. You're, you know, it's such a sad feeling. Rewind it two years ago, Michelle. You know what I mean? This is, you know, people you intubate for a pneumonia or something else. You felt like you saved their lives. You give them some antibiotics, they get better. And um, no, I think that it's amazing about, and you guys don't get enough credit for what you do. And, you know, aside from this, are you doing that aspect of care in your job right now with all this pandemic stuff going on? Um, so for sure, there's there's lots of elements of that. So, you know, I mean, during the week, I'm in an outpatient oncology clinic. On the weekends, I'm in an inpatient hospice unit. And so, you know, it's been a very interesting, it's been just very interesting to watch all of the changes, you know, and, and even myself, I struggled in the beginning because I, I remember like having this day where I was, you know, all of a sudden we were working remotely, which is super odd, right? When you're with patients all day. I mean, even that I was like, well, how do we do this? And yeah just the challenges that came with that, I was trying to process. And I thought, man, I've spent my, the majority of my career trying to help people understand why these conversations are important, how to have them, how to get more comfortable. And all of a sudden I woke up and death and dying is the breakfast conversation around the world, literally, right? right. It sort of has been thrust upon us. Our mortality was literally thrown in our faces. And I found myself thinking like, okay, these conversations have to happen. And, and they're being sort of, again, they're being forced upon us to happen at a rapid pace. But does that necessarily mean that we're having better conversations? So that was a question that I was like, I don't know. And then my next question was, you know, how do I figure out what would be most helpful, you know, to make these conversations more comfortable for the people who have to have them? Because sure, our hospice and palliative care workers out there, you know, our hospice and palliative interdisciplinary teams out there, we are, but man, we all need to be working together. You know, it's, this isn't sort of like a rescue mission. This is like, this is a gigantic ultimate collaboration, you know? And so what I started to see, you know, as things changed, as we all are seeing, 
every specialty is having its own level of burnout, right? Or yeah. compassion fatigue. I mean, we all have to be talking with one another. Nobody should feel like, and when I say nobody, us as individuals, us as specialists, nobody should have to feel like we're in this alone because every single one of us matters and we're all taking care of a different part of that person, but we can never lose sight of that big picture. And like you said, you know, yes, you're putting someone on a vent. It's completely heartbreaking. We know, you know, what that picture looks like, but let us never forget that every time we enter that room, no matter what we dress ourselves in, that is still a healthy person in a sick body. That person can still hear us. That is still someone we need to treat like a person. I have not in my entire career ever met anybody who said to me, I couldn't wait to be sick. Finally, it's here. <laughs> you know, like I've never met anyone who was like, I couldn't wait to have cancer. Did you know it comes with complimentary pain and suffering? Who knew? This... Like, no, that doesn't get said, right? Yeah. You know, and we're, we get up and we do this every day because we want to be with people. You have to love people to do any aspect of this job. That doesn't yeah. mean that you're not, you don't have these human moments where you're like, forget it. So, you know, we all get mad. We all get frustrated. We all get fed up. We all, you know, some of that is system driven. It's just stuff that we have to fight to really be able to take care of people. But at the end of the day, there's something deep down inside of every person that you pass in every hallway, whether it is housekeeping, you know, all the way up to the CMO. Everybody gets up and they get dressed and they go there because they want to do something good for somebody else. There's a reason that we're there and we're all there together. You know, it's not often that you're in a hallway alone. See, so this like, is why I, I'm a hundred percent sure that you should have been a doctor. You're just amazing. You know what I mean, you're very captivating. And I gotta tell you, for me to be quiet and just listen to someone like you, I mean, it shows you that the, the, I don't know, just the, the sound of your voice and what you're saying is the most important. It means a lot, but I want to make sure I, I ask, say this. Tell like me. Before you throw this in, I just, I really want everybody to truly hear this. When I was getting back to that part of, you know, just holding space for somebody, you know, there's going to be days, I mean, every single day you're going to encounter somebody who doesn't like you, thinks you're stupid, doesn't think you're helping that person, thinks you're killing their loved one. And even in all of those really hard moments, because it's very easy to talk about the things that are really great, but let's talk about the things that are really, really hard and sort of kind of break us down a little bit. Those moments when you're in that and you're able to not push back and just be and just listen and provide validation, I want every one of you who are listening to this to know that when you leave a room like that or when you leave a conversation after that, sometimes we feel like, man, we just failed or God, this is so hard or why the hell do I keep doing this? These people, nobody appreciates it. Wrong. Super wrong. Because you gave that person something that they didn't have before that conversation or before that uncomfortable space, you gave them the opportunity to be heard. A lot of times when people are pushing back, first of all, when you go into a conversation to tell someone that someone that they love is not getting better or is sick enough to die, nobody wants to hear that. That is really difficult stuff. It's supposed to suck. It's supposed to be hard. And you're not supposed to fix every problem. We don't sell immortality. We don't become clinicians to save life indefinitely. That's, there's a very big difference between being alive and living. Those are two very different things. And we have a lot of things and a lot of procedures and a lot of machines and a lot of stuff in our toolbox to be able to keep someone alive. But are we helping them live? You know, and those moments when you walk away, when you feel defeated, just know that you gave that person something back. You gave them a little piece of control for those five minutes when you were the stupid doctor or the dumb nurse or the person who couldn't clean the room right or the <laughs> shitty food deliverer, like all those things, you just gave them back a piece of control because everything else around them is completely out of control. 
And so you need to know that you did something good, even in the situations that feel the worst. You did something really good. And don't forget it. My God. I mean, I almost want to stop the podcast right there. That was such a great moment. But let me just ask you one last question because, oh my God, I can't believe it's been an hour. I told you that's what we started on time because I could talk to you forever. So <laughs> one last thing I just wanted to say, which really impressed me about you, is um, you're, you're, you're part of writing a book. And I think I'm overgeneralizing it, but you know, you approached me to write something uh, in regards to critical care and you know, our, our experiences with you know, end-of-life care. Can you just briefly tell everyone, because I'm so proud of you, and I told you that this oh. is a great idea. You should, it's really going to put you on a different platform and level and all these things. What, what are you writing? What is your book about? So our book is going to be about candid conversations about death and dying. You know, and it's really going to be geared towards the medical community to help us, you know, figure out, you know, what are our barriers? What is the history of why these conversations became so difficult to have or why we're, you know, why they're so taboo? You know, it's going to really just take a deep dive into, you know, dividing this by session, dividing it by specialty, dividing it by culture, you know, ethnicity, religion, you know, beliefs, myths, truths, all of these different things. Because I want to think, you know, our, our mission is to help you you know, sort of find the tools that you need to, to be, again, become comfortable in those uncomfortable situations. You know, I think the biggest, the biggest message is that death is not a failure, but people dying poorly, that's a failure because we really truly have the right equipment, the right tools, the right everything, the right conversations, the right caregiving. We have it. We have the ability to make it happen. We have to learn how to use those things properly. You know, sometimes just because you have another tool in your toolbox doesn't necessarily mean that you should use it. So, well, well I'm going to say this, you know, I mean, I have to go for my, my, my closure now. I'm kind of sad a little bit, you know, <laughs> but let me just say, um, Michelle, the nurse with the purple hair, which is the coolest tagline in the whole world. I love it. Um, I'm going to make you our official palliative care go-to nurse. Is that okay? Can I have you back on the show again? I would love that. I would so I'm love that. I'm telling you. I mean, <laughs> if anyone saw how, I'm like almost going to take notes. I'm listening to you because you're just packed with one-liners and my favorite word, pearls. You have some wonderful pearls. But um, I'm going to say thank you again. And you know what? Anything about you, website, please give it to me so I can put it on our little podcast so people can look at you and maybe join one of your uh, your death cafes. Is there a I way would to- so yeah. love that. Yes, absolutely. So we are on meetup.com. And you okay. literally can just go to meetup.com and type in Philadelphia or Death Cafe Philadelphia. It'll give you um, a sign up. It's free. You just sign up and we do it biweekly. Um, and I would absolutely love for any one of you to jump on and introduce yourself and, you know, say that you're there because you heard this crazy podcast and you just wanted to check it out. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, our website is uh, com. Pretty easy. You can um, go onto the website and view the film. If there's um, streaming of the film on there, or you can find it on Amazon. And I am very accessible on all the social media platforms. And I totally love to chat. I would geek out. I would be happy to help anybody answer any questions. Um, yeah, I, lo- I would love to come back. I see the smile on your face. And I'm definitely <laughs> going to have you back. So anyways, Michelle, I'm going to hit the stop record button. Thank you so much. And I know I'm going to talk to you again soon. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice.
Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.